Uh, but with that in mind, uh, we've got another piece of the Word of God to look at, and that's Jeremiah. Uh, welcome to Semester 2 uh, at the Campus Bible Talks this semester. We'll be looking at the book of Jeremiah. Now, we don't really tend to kind of float around in this book, so I thought I'd kind of give you a bit of a, um, a, a situational kind of uh, place here to show you where Jeremiah is in the Bible. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's classed as one of the prophets, in particular one of the major prophets. Uh, not necessarily because what they had to say was more important than the minor ones, or that the minor ones were like, you know, under 16 or, or, or whatever. Um, but but the, the major prophets were big, really big. Uh, and so that's where it is in the Bible, uh, and we're going to do it this semester. And so I thought I'd just start, and you've got this um, here in your outlines, at least the heading, you can fill in uh, the, the dot points as we go down. I wanted to start by giving you six reasons why this is a really bad idea, okay? Uh, and here's the first one. Here's the first reason why we shouldn't study Jeremiah, and that's that it's the longest book of the Bible. You might have thought it was the Psalms. You were wrong. Uh, the Psalms has the most chapters, but Jeremiah has the most words, and that means that remembering it and what it says in chapter 2 when you're kind of in chapter 43 or whatever it is, let alone trying to remember how it holds together is actually really difficult. So that's the first reason. Second reason, it's chronologically confused. Now, Jeremiah is all over the shop. It's like a time machine got together with a pinball machine and like, you know, like everything just went everywhere. And so whenever you're reading it, you're never really sure where you are in the story. And that leads to our third and our fourth reason to give this book a miss. Uh, the third reason is this. It has no apparent structure. Uh, it is constantly uh, changing genre. So there's three and four. Uh, and so what it'll do is it'll just kind of roll along and all of a sudden you're in this poetry land and then you've got some narrative and you're like, okay, cool, maybe I can get on board with the story. And then all of a sudden there's a sermon and Jeremiah's preaching back to narrative over to poetry and, and everything's just kind of chopping and changing. And so reading Jeremiah almost feels like going through a socials feed. You know, you're kind of scrolling down, you've got a picture here, a video there, then some random comment from your grandma, and, 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 and it's all disconnected, and you just keep scrolling. It's like, what on earth am I doing? I can't stop, but I don't understand what I'm seeing. That's Jeremiah. Now, supposing, just supposing, that you managed to overcome all of those difficulties. You could hold the book in your head, you could work out where you were in time, how the whole thing holds together, and why it keeps changing its medium. Then you've got to deal with the fifth thing. And if you're starting to think this sounds like breaking into a, bolt, a bank vault, like, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, it really is, is that. The fifth thing is this. There are different versions of Jeremiah. Uh, this one, I think, is the, the scariest one. Uh, because at a certain point in history, Jeremiah, in the Hebrew, got translated into the Greek. And in a classic example of poor management, maybe it was the West Australian, uh, that they got different editors and then the book started to change. Now, we can trust the version that we have in our Bible, but it does have this kind of niggling question that kind of sits at the back of our mind every time we read it about whether or not what we're reading is what we should be reading. Now, if you're turned off by that, that's fine, but there is a sixth reason, and this is probably the most significant reason to not study Jeremiah. And it's simply this. It's depressing. <laughs> like, really, really depressing. The whole book is about the judgment of God and how he will destroy not only his own people, but all the nations of the world. See, other prophetic books, they have a turning point. You kind of read Isaiah, you hit chapter 40, and all of a sudden hope springs eternal and everything's light and shiny. And Jeremiah is no exception. But on the whole, the longest book in the Bible has the shortest and most repeated message. And it goes like this. You have sinned. 
God is angry and he will make you pay for it. That's hard enough to talk about for just one week, right? There's a whole bunch of theological and pastoral issues and we're going to do it for 12. So why on earth are we doing Jeremiah? Well, to put it bluntly, it's because all of the other prophets were taken. Uh, As part of our curriculum for you at the CU, we want to make sure that you deal with all of the major biblical genres in your three to four years or whatever it is with your time here. So, you know, hitting up Old Testament, New Testament narrative, a gospel, an epistle, uh, a prophet, uh, wisdom, literature. Uh, But all of the, the kind of major churches in the area, most of which you go to, have kind of done all of these other prophets in the last couple of years. And so we didn't want to kind of do something kind of really kind of, oh, we're just going to do the same thing again. So we thought, all right, well, we've got to tackle Jeremiah. And here we are. Uh, But what I do want to say is that from the offset, even though this is a high-risk enterprise, we'll see how many of you are still in the room in in week 12, um, we will possibly strike upon high reward. I was talking to a pastor very recently, and he said in his 33 years of preaching the Bible, he had never once preached Jeremiah. And what that means, I'm guessing, is that we are about to open up a part of the Bible that many of us have never seen before. And I want to say that as you study it and you start to wrap your head around all of this kind of baggage and and you wade your way through it and it finally comes together, what Jeremiah has to say to us is profound and it is worth the effort. And so with that in mind, six reasons why we shouldn't say Jeremiah, a really good reason to do so. Uh, Let's have a look at chapter one uh, because chapter one introduces us to Jeremiah and the word that he will speak. And he's going to, uh, we're going to do this today under two headings. They're there in your outline. Uh, we'll look at the speaker of the word. And then we'll look, secondly, at the word of the speaker. So first of all, let's have a look at the speaker of the word. Uh, and we're going to look at Jeremiah's context. So grab your Bibles, have a look at verse 1. Uh, this is what it says. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, king of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. So these three verses give us Jeremiah's context. And just for kind of reference, we're going to spend a lot of our time here uh, because these verses tell us an awful lot of background information that we need to know to understand the words that Jeremiah speaks. Uh, And so as a way in, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the names of the three kings that are mentioned there in verses 2 to 3, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Uh, They're all kings of Judah. Uh, And if you know your Bible, you'll know that these are the last three kings of Judah. This is just before the nation is taken into captivity by Babylon. And so in terms of the biblical timeline, uh, this is vaguely where we are uh, uh, in that red circle. Um, And what we are witnessing in Jeremiah is the demise of a nation, and not just any nation, but the nation of God. Uh, But to kind of give you some kind of more context, let's go back up that timeline a bit. Because if you remember, God's people Israel at a certain point here form a kingdom. Uh, King Saul happens and then King David and then King Solomon, people I'm assuming that you've kind of vaguely heard of. But after Solomon, the kingdom splits and you can see that in the upside down Y behind me. Uh, And and the northern ten tribes become Israel uh, and the southern two tribes become Judah. 
Now, you kind of look at where Israel kind of goes down over here. In 722 BC, Israel is destroyed. The nation of Assyria marches in, destroys the whole thing and takes everyone into exile and they never return. Uh, And in that kind of uh, time period, Judah only just survives. It's kind of stripped down to the city of Jerusalem, uh, but then Assyria pulls back. Uh, And the thing that we work out as we read the Bible is that Judah's continued survival depends on whether or not the nation obeys or disobeys God. Now, given we see the end there of verse 3, I'm sure you can guess what happened and what they chose. They chose to disobey. Uh, And so a critical person to be aware of uh, is a guy called Manasseh. Manasseh comes to the throne. He's the granddaddy of Josiah. Uh, And here's what happens when he turns up. This is from 2 Kings 21 verse 9. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. And just so you're clear that God isn't kind of like just exaggerating here. This guy burned his own children in sacrifice to foreign gods. Okay, so like this is something that nobody would disagree that this this man is evil. Uh, And so verse 12, therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem, the capital, and Judah, that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, like physically. Remember that kind of that, that awkward feeling? I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. That was kind of the capital of the northern kingdom that got smashed up. And the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They'll be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt unto this day. Now, from that point on, Judah becomes a ticking time bomb. It's no longer a question of if, it's a question of when. Okay, this is going to happen. Now, Manasseh has a son. He's called Amon. Uh, He he, he only rules for two years. He gets assassinated. But then his grandson, Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, ascends the throne. And he's the first of the three kings that we see here in Jeremiah. And Josiah is a good king. In fact, he's the best king. He's the only king in the whole Bible, other than Jesus, where, where nothing bad is ever said about him. Not even David, not even Hezekiah, the kind of the big giants of the kingdom. He's a good king. And what we're told in 2 Kings is that in the 12th year of his reign, the year before the word of God comes to Jeremiah, he begins to reform the nation. So he's taking God seriously. Uh, And this is what happens. God responds to him. Again, this is 2 Kings, now chapter 22, verse 19. And God says to him, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. And so he does the most thorough spiritual clean that the nation has ever experienced He gets out of it, but even then, you keep reading, this is the next chapter, chapter 23. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah, 
because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. And so the question is not if. The question is, how long will the kings of Judah be able to stave off God's judgment? And the answer that we see is not long, because both Jehoiakim and Zedekiah are evil kings. They refuse to listen to God, and they follow in the way of their ancestor Manasseh, and eventually the nation is destroyed. So as we look at kind of Jeremiah's context, the national situation, it's a ticking time bomb. But there are two other elements in Jeremiah's context that we need to know. The first one just then was national. The second one is global. Uh, the world as we know it is in political turmoil. And I've got a timeline for you. It's here on the screen. It's also in your outlines. Uh, but don't like just write everything down you see on the screen because I know that you're going to come up to me after and say, there wasn't enough room and I know there's not enough room. So you're going to have to use your brains and work out what you're going to put in that tiny, tiny little box. Okay. Um, first thing, and this is probably something you should put in your tiny, tiny little box. 640 BC, Josiah becomes king. Now, I've got a map up there next to it, uh, because at that point, Assyria is still the word power. They're the ones that took out Israel. Uh, and he rules until 609 BC, at which point Jehoiakim becomes king. He rules for 11 years uh, and until 598 BC, uh, at which point Zedekiah takes over uh, in 597. There's a bit of a time lag there, because uh, there are actually five kings going on here, but two of them... Uh, kind of rule for three months so we don't really kind of pay attention to them at least not today okay so, so they're, they're the main ones um, uh, in 627 bc which is our second kind of big block up there this is where things start to get interesting this is the year after josiah begins his reforms uh, two things happen uh, the first we've already seen jeremiah is commissioned the word of the lord comes to jeremiah uh, but the second is this, Ashurbanipal, there's a name for your first child, uh, he, he is the last great king of Assyria and he dies. And what happens at this point is Assyria just starts to implode and people kind of rise up and, and it kind of induces civil war. Uh, and, and basically what happens at that point is two powers emerge from the chaos. You've got Babylon kind of up here in the north. Uh, it wasn't its own kind of country. It started as a city in rebellion to Assyria and then started to kind of take the whole area over. And then you've got Egypt, kind of one of um, Israel and Judah's traditional enemies here down in the south. And I want you to notice where Judah is at this point, right? Right in the middle of them. The world is collapsing and they're stuck in the crossfire. Now, both of these nations, because they're kind of they're doing their own thing, kind of leave Judah alone until 609 B.C., uh, but it's at that point that um, Egypt kind of marches in and the pharaoh, his name is Nico, another name for your child, um, kills Josiah uh, and he puts Jehoiakim on the throne and Judah becomes a vassal of Egypt. Now, this is where things get even more turbulent, okay? 605 BC, Babylon sweeps down from the north takes out Egypt such that in 604, Egypt is pushed out of the Syria-Palestine region and now Judah becomes a vassal of Babylon. So we're still being ruled by Jehoiakim, but he doesn't like that. And so in a couple of years' time, he's going to rebel and that precipitates the first of Jerusalem's sieges. That happens in 597 there up on the screen. Uh, he dies in the siege. Uh, somebody kind of rules for three months and then, then uh, Zedekiah is put on the throne there. Uh, and it's at this point uh, that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who turns up in the book of Daniel, um, takes away the ruling class back with him to Babylon. And this is the first of three deportations. 
the captivity, the exile. We kind of treat it as one kind of theological package, but it happens kind of in three stages. Now, Nebuchadnezzar puts Zedekiah on the throne, but Zedekiah, because an evil king doesn't listen to God, he rebels, just like Jehoiakim did. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back. He's like, oh, I obviously didn't learn your lesson the first time. Let me show you how I do things. So he besieges Jerusalem again, uh, completely levels it and destroys it, uh, and he takes a whole bunch more people back to Babylon. Now, there's more to the story than that. We'll add to the, the timeline as we work through the semester, but it's around this whole period that Jeremiah has his preaching ministry. And so the period of that ministry, it's kind of 40 or so years, spans a time where not just his country, but his entire world is disintegrating around him. A lot of information, that's the key point. Everything is in flux, nationally, globally, but there's still one more thing that we need to know about his context to understand just what's going down in this book. And it's personal. We see it there in verse 1. Jeremiah is a priest. He lives in a, a town called Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. It's sort of near Jerusalem, but, but, but not obviously in Jerusalem. Uh, and the reason that's a problem uh, is because of what that town is and what Josiah did. Anathoth, we find out in 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, is a town uh, or a city set aside exclusively for the use of the Levitical priesthood. Fantastic. God provides for his priests. Great. But one of the things Josiah does when he reforms the nation is he kind of does like an internal affairs investigation, like he kind of tries to shut down all the shoddy operations. And so he finds the, the priests of all the false gods and he kills them. And he finds the true priests of the true God uh, who are kind of operating and doing their, their kind of business outside of Jerusalem. And he shuts it all down. And he says, no, 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 God told us we worship in Jerusalem only. So you're all done. You've got to come here to work. And so he's completely flipped their world. Uh, and so he stops them from doing the priestly things that they would have been doing in Anathoth. And the thing that we're told here is that Jeremiah is a member of one of those communities, a community that has every reason to hate Josiah. And it's in the midst of that maelstrom, personal, national, global, that the word of God comes to Jeremiah and commissions him as a prophet to confront his family, to confront his nation, and to confront his world. That's the context. And we have the word of God in Jeremiah sitting right at the heart of it. So let's kind of dig a little deeper at that point. Let's have a look at his commission then in verses 4 to 10. This is where we're going to start to speed up and get some speed. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And he replies, Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. Uh, literally, I am only a youth. So Jeremiah is probably only about 16, 17. He, he's virtually your age at the point that he's commissioned. So kind of let that kind of sink on your shoulders. Imagine that happens to you. And the Lord then says back to him, Do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and he touched my mouth and he said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. 
Now, those are big verses, right? And you've got to get a sense of the weighty task that God is giving Jeremiah, but also the comfort, right, and the enabling that comes with it. And you can just imagine yourself kind of feeling kind of really bad one of those shady Christian days and going, I need some encouragement, flipping over to Jeremiah 1 because you never go there. Uh, and you read it, and it's like, oh, wow, I've, I've got this kind of, this, uh, God's, God's got me here. And you kind of project yourselves onto Jeremiah. And you can sort of understand why you do it. Jeremiah's a young person. Uh, and, and I too have been given the word of God and the message of the gospel. And I've been told to go to the nations like Jesus told me in Matthew 28 and make disciples of them. I know that Romans 8.28, I'm foreknown, predestined and loved, uh, like verse 4 and 5. Uh, and so I don't need to be afraid. God will deliver me. And as far as I'm aware, this is how most people apply these verses, either personally or in sermons or in commentaries. And I want to say that none of those things are untrue. You know, God is for you. If he's given you the word of the gospel, it's a powerful world, and he wants you to take it places, and he will help you as you do so. But there are a number of things in these verses that tell me that Jeremiah is not your average speaker of God's word. I'll give you a couple. I won't give you all of them. And the first one is actually his job title there in verse 5. He is to be a prophet to the nations. That is not a small deal, right? To, to prophesy to the nations, we see, is in some way to determine their destiny. Uh, so we see in verse 10 there uh, that he's been set over nations and kingdoms. And then we get six verbs that are very significant verbs in the book of Jeremiah. And they're all things that the word of God does. So have a look there in verse 10. What, what do they do? Um, it is to uproot, to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. And as you trace those words through the very long book of Jeremiah, and I have done it, it took me some time, um, what you see is that they're used almost exclusively to describe the establishing or the destruction of nations and kingdoms. And so by reaching out his hand and touching Jeremiah's mouth there in verse 9, what God is doing is he's imbuing Jeremiah with great power. This is not your average speaker of God's word. I'm pretty sure I evangelized a New Zealander at one point. New Zealand is still around. Nothing got uprooted, nothing got torn down, maybe accidentally planted. I'm not, not sure, but I'm pretty sure that's not what was happening when I did it. Jeremiah here will shape the destiny of nations. But here I think we need to be a bit more precise than that, because strictly speaking, it's not Jeremiah that shapes the destiny of nations, is it? It's the words of Jeremiah that shape world history and the destiny of nations. And that's because they're the word of God. You see, whenever those six verbs turn up in Jeremiah, it is very clear that the one who does those things is God. And so it's not as if Jeremiah is kind of given some sort of magical power, you know, kind of do what he wills. Like, oh, not a big fan of Brunei at the moment, so see you later, buddy. He is constrained. God puts his words in Jeremiah's mouth such that he will speak only what God commands him to speak. And one of the significant things about the book of Jeremiah is how often the word word is used. So here's a picture of my Bible sitting here in front of me, but I didn't want to highlight just randomly. Like I know that some people do, Caleb highlighting all of his Bible. Um, so I thought I'd just kind of do this digitally and throw it up on, on, on the screen. Um, these are all the word words and the speaking words. 
Uh, there are 22 of them. Two of them you can't see in that particular translation. Uh, and I think, Houston, we have a theme, right? Uh, it, it's, it's the word. Now, now, what's really interesting about this, um, have a look at verse 16 and 17, because there's actually two words for speaking. It's like, I said to you, I told you. You know, like We have that same thing in English as well. And I don't think this would be a particularly big deal if it didn't work like this. Um, everywhere it says, and I said to God, and God said to me, and they have that little conversation, kind of verse 6, 7, 8, and, and that sort of thing. It's kind of one word. Uh, but when it uses the word, word, like the noun, there's only a few other places where the same kind of, kind of root wordy thing happens in the verb. Uh, they're in verse 16 and verse 17. And God says, I will pronounce my judgments. Literally, I will word my judgments. This is a really dodgy way of using English, but I'm trying to communicate the point here, right? And then verse 17, God says to Jeremiah, stand up and say to them, stand up and word to them whatever I command you. And so I think like, like lexically, they're actually bringing some ideas here together to show you that the word of God and the speaker of the word of God, God, prophet and word are kind of blurred together. When God speaks, Jeremiah speaks. When Jeremiah speaks, it's God speaking. And you see this in the book of Jeremiah. It's actually one of the reasons why it's so confusing. And we'll see this in future weeks. You'll be reading along and you'll be like, oh, cool, God's saying some stuff. And then you're like, hey, man, that doesn't sound like God. That sounds like Jeremiah. He's kind of talking about how sad he is and what he's experiencing. And you start to scratch your head. You think, am I, am I dumb? Like, I, just, I, I need to go to a quick common hour and then kind of learn how to do some more <laughs> deep, deep diving into the Bible. And then you'll be reading and you'll be like, oh, wow, Jeremiah's really kind of ripping into God right now. And then all of a sudden you're like, hang on, that sounds like God. And what happens is the whole structure of the book is kind of set up so that sections begin with this phrase, the word of God came to me saying, and then you lose all sense of separation between God, word and speaker. And that's intentional. You see, Jeremiah, it's not about us. It's not even about the speaker of the word of God. It's about the word of God. It's the thing that comes to the foreground as everything else recedes. And so with that in mind, uh, let's take a look quite quickly now compared to the other section at our second section, which is the word of the speaker. Because we come to understand the word of the speaker through three pictures that God gives Jeremiah in the second half of the chapter. Uh, the first picture is of an almond branch. We see it there in verses 11 to 12. And it tells us that the word of God in Jeremiah is a word that will come to pass. So verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly. For I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Now, now, God is indulging a little bit of Hebrew punnery here because the word for almond branch uses the same consonants as the word for watching. It's sort of like God saying, look at your wrist. What do you see? A watch. You have seen correctly, for I am watching my word. Right? <laughs> Corny, yes. Inspired, absolutely. And so the difference, though, here is that instead of kind of like a watch, the almond branch was the first branch to blossom in the springtime. And so it became the signpost of things to come. And what God is saying, therefore, is that whatever word you hear from me, Jeremiah, whatever word, therefore, you speak to the people, that word will come to pass. I am watching over it literally to do it. And so as sure as you see the almond branches blossom around your house or wherever it is that you are at the time, you will see my word fulfilled. So that's the first thing. It's a word that will happen. The second one, is the second picture, is of a boiling pot. And we see it there in verses 13 to 16. 
And this picture tells us that the word of God in Jeremiah is a word of judgment. Have a look there at verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods and in worshipping what their hands have made. See, the word that Jeremiah speaks will be a word of judgment. And he gives the reason for it there in verse 16. His people have forsaken him. And instead they've gone off to worship other gods, gods which are not real gods. And the nature of that judgment won't be supernatural, it won't be like Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of fire and brimstone from the sky. It's going to be decidedly mundane. A nation from the north will be poured out like a bucket of boiling water and it will sweep over the world and destroy their country. Now, at the time that the prophecy was received, we didn't know which country that was, which is why it's kind of a vague sort of thing, kingdoms of the north. Uh, and part of the reason we didn't know that what it was is because it didn't actually exist at this point. Babylon kind of rose quite quickly. But as we progress through the book, it becomes increasingly clear that that boiling pot is Babylon. And knowing this, I think, helps reframe our understanding of that context and that timeline that we saw just before. Because the world is about to be thrown into political turmoil. Judah is going to be swept away in the currents and cross-currents of world war. And the thing to understand is that isn't happenstance. That isn't like just the misfortune of just happening to be a small nation in between two large nations. What the boiling pot tells us is that the world as it is thrown into chaos and the nations as they rise and as they fall is not because of man's ambition or cause and effect or poor economic management. It's because God is judging his people. The whole of the book virtually takes place in the city of Jerusalem. And as far as God is concerned, that is the centre of the world stage, the epicentre of the disaster that will spread across the world. What we are reading and what we are seeing in history is not political, it's theological. So that's the second thing, it's a word of judgment. The third thing we see in verse 19, 17 to 19 uh, is of a fortified city. Now, this picture isn't like the two pictures Jeremiah just saw. Uh, presumably, he was just sitting around and he saw an almond branch and God said, hey, what are you looking at? Um, boiling pot. But this is a metaphor that God gives him. Uh, and the fortified city tells us that the word of God in Jeremiah is a word that will prevail. Have a look at verse 17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Now, who is the them? Well, we find out in the next verse. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. That's who it is. They will fight against you but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, Jeremiah will speak the word of God for 40 years to the people of Judah. And what God tells him here is that his ministry will be characterised by one thing always, perpetual resistance. And as we work through the book, we'll see that. He's ignored, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, he survives assassination attempts, near-death experiences, and all of them come from his own people, the people of God, no less. 
And God says to Jeremiah, I will make you an impenetrable city. Jerusalem is going to get besieged. It's going to fall down. But you as a city will not. No matter what they do, no matter how much they struggle against you, whatever lengths they go to, they will not be able to silence you or stop you. The word that you preach, it cannot be stopped. It will prevail for I am with you and will rescue you. And we know from biblical history that this is true. Jeremiah actually survives. And that makes Jeremiah unusual, I think, because one of the key features of Israel's history is that it is littered with the bodies of dead prophets. And so because Jeremiah survives, and because we've seen Jeremiah and the word of God become so closely aligned, Jeremiah's survival is actually a living example of the nature of the word that he speaks. Whoever comes up against it, they will lose. The word will prevail. And that's the third thing that we learn about the word of the speaker. Those are the characteristics of the word. They'll happen. It's of judgment. And it cannot be stopped. And we see all three of them confirmed in the book of Jeremiah. God threatens judgment. The people resist. It happens anyway. And this, if anything, I think is the central lesson of the book. And it gives us a window then into how we're to read Jeremiah today. Because there's a weird thing going on in Jeremiah that we need to be aware of, and that's that there are two audiences. Uh, There's Judah in Judah, and then there's Judah in exile. See, Judah in Judah, this is when Jeremiah is actually talking to them and saying, guys, if you don't stop disobeying God, he's going to smoke you. But then there's Judah in exile. They're the ones who've actually seen God's judgment come down. They've kind of sort of escaped the fire, and now they're there, and they've got this book called Jeremiah, and they're reading it and going, oh, And so the book functions, I think, at two levels as we read it. The first is a direct warning. God is the king of the world. He takes his people seriously. Will you listen to his voice or not? But the second level is one of kind of rebuke, but sort of mixed in with hope. It's like, oh, wow. He did tell us that would happen. We didn't listen. It happened. That's on us. We should have listened. But... Buried in this book of doom and gloom are glimmers of hope because that word that uproots and destroys is the same word that builds and plants. And critically, as we read through the book, we see that the the people that God builds and plants are those who listen to his word. So whilst not as prominent, the word of hope, it's a hope that we find uh, in all of the prophets and in Jeremiah, it's a hope that we find fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Not just a speaker of God's word, but the word himself made flesh, become man. And he's the one that we are called to listen to. As the writer to the Hebrews says, this is right at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So not somebody who just shapes the destiny of nations, but the heir of all things, the one who rules over them all. And so for us today, as we read Jeremiah, we receive the double message. As those in Judah, we're told and warned of God's judgment uh, to take rebellion seriously, to flee from our sins and turn back to the Lord. And then as those who are in exile, that there is still hope that though that judgment hangs over our head because of Jesus There is something that takes us through the judgment of God, which we heard all about at NYC, and instead find life, life building and planting forevermore. 
And so today is an, inter- an invitation, I think. Uh, the invitation is simply this, stick around. Hardest book in the Bible, longest book in the Bible, most depressing book in the Bible. Stick around and watch the story unfold. Listen to the word of God in the words of Jeremiah and see what God has in store for his people both then and today.